Our homily this morning is loving in times of war. How many of us feel that we are living in times of war? It feels like, it looks like we have not stopped struggling, lamenting, and grieving since November of 2016. Amen? I remember when we gathered right here after the elections in this sanctuary to provide a safe space where we could grieve collectively and feel held in our despair and fear for the days to come. I remember the two moms who showed up with their child, bodies trembling with fear, crying and weeping, asking for prayers wondering what would happen to their family. I remember laying my hands on many of you who showed up that day, many of you who asked for a blessing, for a word of reassurance, for consolation, for hope. I remember thinking while I was holding on to someone's hand or shoulder, crying myself, I remember thinking, hold on, hold on, you are not alone. And I remember feeling reaffirmed in our commitment to keep these doors open, to support and strengthen this safe space for our community, for our neighbors, for people who come here once and we never see them again, but perhaps perhaps went away with a spark of hope. I remember feeling in my body and in my spirit the urgency of that moment with echoes of Dr. King's words reverberating throughout the sanctuary and throughout my heart. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. An inescapable web of mutuality. And that's what we are, right? Bound to each other by a chosen faith, by our covenant, by our principles and values. Since then, we have been witnesses to so many horrors. We have been tried time and time again. We have been resisting the tides of hatred, and we have been showing up in so many ways to counter the evil with love. And we are getting weary because the work of dismantling oppression can feel so overwhelming And yet we continue marching, protesting, signing petitions, making phone calls, sending postcards and letters, organizing and electing local leaders that are making a difference. Amen? Amen. In this election year, how shall we hold on? In this election year, how shall we cultivate peace in our hearts? How shall we restore hope 
in our hearts, in our communities, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our nation. We often think of children as a source of hope for the future, and they are. And when I speak of children, I think about six children who have died while in ICE custody. I'm going to call out their names and I'm going to ask you to respond with presente, which means they are here. Jacqueline Calmaquin, seven years old. Felipe Alonso Gomez, eight years old. Darling Cristabel Córdoba Valle, 10 years old. Juan de León Gutiérrez, 16 year old. Wilmer Josué Ramírez Vázquez, 2 years old. Carlos Hernández Vázquez, 16 years old. Marie Juárez, 20 months old. And these are just the children. There have been 24 deaths in total in ICE detention center since November of 2016. They are the missing pieces of the tapestry of our lives. But the threads of love keep connecting us to their memories. Tomorrow, we will gather for the annual Martin Luther King Day Rally in March. And this year's theme, as Bob reminded us, is love without borders. The focus is on immigration, and I have been asked to speak. I have chosen words from Dr. King to share with people tomorrow, and I'd like to share them with you. Our Unitarian Universalist faith has called us to this place, to this moment with urgency, with acknowledgement that there is deep pain and heartache that has eroded our joy and at times taken away our hope. Before I received my call to the ministry, I was a legal advocate working with people living with HIV AIDS, mothers in prison, the LGBTQ community, and immigrants. I did my clinical placement for two years in law school with the Immigrants' Rights Clinic. At that time, in the 80s, people were coming from El Salvador, from Guatemala, from Mexico. I was in charge of interviewing them. Those stories stay with me until today. Entire villages burned out reminding one of Vietnam and Napalm. Death squads trained and supported financially by the United States. As an immigrant myself, I felt deeply connected to the experiences of people fleeing violence and seeking political asylum, trying to convince the government that their lives were worth it that they deserved another chance to live. 
I felt a sense of responsibility to use my voice and legal training to defend those whose lives and dignity were being trampled upon by oppressive laws and government policies. For me, immigration has always been about human rights. And now more than ever, the horror that is taking place at the southern border calls us, demands of us, that we respond, that we take risks, that we show up, that we follow our moral compass as a nation and as a denomination that prides itself on being on the side of love. What is happening all around us is terrifying and traumatic. We are witnessing so many atrocities being perpetrated against the most vulnerable human beings. Not a day goes by that the news doesn't reveal another violent attack rooted in racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia, hatred, evil. And our bodies and our spirits have been absorbing that energy, that pain, for years now. And we are carrying this heartache wherever we go. We feel the weight of it lodged in our throats like a stone, making us tense, unable to sleep well, wondering what new horror will be revealed in the morning. Living in times of war traumatizes us, alters our sense of reality, replaces our normal with constant uncertainty makes us go into a state of numbness sometimes, perhaps exacerbating depression and making us question whether it even makes sense for us to hope. I know I'm not alone in feeling this. In the preface of his book, Restoring Hope, Cornell West writes, a specter of despair haunts America. The quality of our lives and the integrity of our souls are in jeopardy. Our public life lies in shambles shot through with icy cynicism and paralyzing pessimism. Beneath it all lurks ominous clouds of despair across this nation. And so now, as in the past... We, prisoners of hope, in desperate times, must try to speak our fallible truths, expose the vicious lies, and bear our imperfect witness. He continues to say, the country is in deep trouble. And he's not talking about optimism. He's talking about hope. And he says, hope is not the same as optimism. Optimism adopts the role of the spectator who surveys the evidence in order to infer that things are going to get better. Yet we know that the evidence does not look good right now. Hope enacts the stance of the participant who actively struggles against the evidence in order to change the Deadly Tides of Despair. In this book, he interviews one of my law professors and mentor, Patricia Williams, 
an African-American law professor and Quaker by faith. He asked her, do you view the law in all its complexity as a source of hope, specifically for people of color? And she said, for me, hope is a force that ties people together. And law is an institutionalized version of what ties us together. It negotiates between the individual and society and the state. And in that sense, it ought to be related to the concept of hope. The civil rights movement is an example of that. The actual interpretation of particular laws in courts at every level was infused by a sense of hope, was fed by an appeal to hope. Hope was written into law. And she was asked, are there any conditions you could imagine under which you could see yourself losing hope? And she said, the continued effort itself is worth something. Even if I don't see any positive results in my lifetime, I do believe that if you work to change the lives or the conditions of one person a year, if you have that sort of impact on the life of another, you should consider yourself tremendously lucky because progress can be long-term as well as short-term. And I ask you, are there any conditions you could imagine under which you could see yourself losing hope? Let's think about that for a moment. I know I have at times felt, what is the point? What is the use? It comes and goes, right? What would Dr. King respond? Under which conditions would he lose hope? What would he say or do in these times? This nation has witnessed families being separated for centuries. This is nothing new, unfortunately. Centuries of enslavement genocide, and displacement. This country also has orchestrated wars, military interventions, trained and supported paramilitary death squads in South and Central America, forcing people to migrate. Under this administration, the brutality and inhumanity has escalated to deathly levels. And yet... And yet there are those who actually believe that Dr. King would be in favor of building the wall, right? People that say he would defend actions to protect, quote-unquote, legal immigration. But I am not convinced that is true. I believe he would be lamenting. I believe he would be grieving I believe he would be praying and marching and raging with us. Amen? Amen? Most of our current debate around immigration revolves around what is legal or illegal. And many people, many liberals like to say they're all for immigration as long as it's legal. But what does that even mean in light of this broken immigration system? What does it mean when international human rights are being violated 
as this nation closes its borders to people seeking asylum. Right now, the border is militarized. ICE is conducting massive deportations, and the government's policies and rhetoric are preventing legal reform, halting the political asylum process, creating a deadly situation, making the families pay the price. In his powerful letter from Birmingham jail, Dr. King responded to his critics urging to end, urging him to end civil disobedience. He addressed the issue of morality within the context of obeying unjust laws. He wrote, I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Injustice anywhere is a thread to justice everywhere. I believe that the current immigration laws are unjust and inhumane. And I believe that Dr. King would defy today's racist immigration laws, separating families, causing people to be deported to certain death, dying at the hands of ICE. So many children have been adopted by strangers while their parents were deported. I wonder, will they ever be reunited? There's at least one mother who was trying for months and years to get custody of her four-year-old back. And then it was too late. He had already been adopted, and the court would not help her to undo that. I believe that Dr. King would urge us to resist and to love, to take heart in the surge of new and powerful voices, resisting tyranny and hatred, changing the narrative of this nation, restoring hope and healing our democracy. He would tell us to hold on even to a remnant of hope. We are called to play the Good Samaritan, he said, on life's roadside. But that will be only an initial act. He said that one day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that all people will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway, or I would say, or across the border, right? He said this calls for a fellowship beyond tribe, beyond nation, beyond race. It calls on all of us to embrace each other in love. And he said, when I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental weak response. He said, I'm speaking of the force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. 
We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak of peace and justice. A world that borders on our doors is waiting for us to begin. Let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. Shall we say that the odds are too great? That the struggle is too hard? Or will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity, of commitment? The choice is ours. He said, I have decided to stick to love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer, and I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I'm going to talk about strong and demanding love. The beautiful thing, he said, is that we are moving against wrong when we love. Beloveds, this is no time for a casual faith like ours. We are living in times of war. We are witnessing and embodying the suffering all around us, inside us. It is precisely at this time that we need to nurture ourselves in this, our beloved community. This community needs us. This community reminds us that along with carrying paint, we are also carrying seeds of hope. Right here is where we have the opportunity to restore that hope, showing up and caring for each other as people of faith, holding on, restoring hope. And right now, we need one another. We need community to be reminded that we are not alone. We know that the evidence does not look good. To live is to wrestle with despair. But I do believe that despite everything, we are tremendously lucky. In fact, we are blessed because the justice work that we do here offers us the opportunity to change lives, including our own. This is our time to recommit to our Unitarian Universalist values and our beliefs of love, justice, and interdependence. This is our time to recommit to this, our beloved church community. Strengthen it. Infuse it with courage, vitality, and hope for the future with your love. So, beloved, let us be the people who hope, the people actively struggling against the evidence in order to change the deadly ties of despair. Let us choose love in the face of evil. Love is our foundation. Love is our legacy for the future. We embody courageous love, love of justice, love of freedom, love of peace, love of community. Let us keep our eyes on the prize and hold on because love is ultimately the only answer. And love, like hope, has no borders. Amen. And blessed be.